Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Decca Aitkenhead is a woman who loves her job. But when you spend your time interviewing the great and the good, it can lead to a few awkward encounters. As a general rule, I'm a bit cagey about artists. It's, it doesn't play to my strengths. And with Tracy Emin in particular, I always thought, oh God, I'm quite glad not to have done her. I just don't think it'll go very well. I don't think I'll get anything out of her. Little did she know. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, when Decker met Tracy Emin. I know lots of people say this about their jobs, but obviously they're all wrong because it is the case that I do legitimately have the best job in the world. Decca Aitkenhead is the chief interviewer for the Sunday Times. I really do mean that. To have a kind of licence to go and ask all the most interesting people in the world, all the things that you'd want to ask them, is an incredible, incredible privilege. Having said that, it's also really hard because the key is to get them to say things they haven't said before, they weren't planning on saying, they didn't necessarily want to say. And how you how you achieve that is an endlessly elusive moving target because it varies from person to person. And obviously, a lot of the time, you know, I fail. And sometimes... You get lucky and people tell you all sorts of things that you're not expecting them to tell you and you're not quite sure how and why it happened. Other times you have quite sort of strategic game plans that come off. But again, you know, often they don't. So I wish there were a magic formula to this that I could simply apply universally, but maybe then it wouldn't be the best job in the world anymore. I suppose part <laughs> of part of the fun of it is the absolute unknowable mystery of what's going to happen and how it's going to go. So you've just done a remarkable interview with Tracy Emin. Tell me, when did you first come across her and when did you first come across her work? I mean, like most people, I became aware of her in the late 90s, you know, at the birth of the of the young British artist, the YBA movement. And she had her famous unmade bed at the Tate Modern. And I think that was the first I was aware of her. And obviously, she's been in public life and on my radar ever since. But I'd never met her and I'd never interviewed her. If I'm completely honest, I'd rather breathe a sigh of relief that I hadn't interviewed her because... Really? Yes, she could be quite difficult, quite contrary. But the honest truth is I'm not a very visual person and I generally struggle 
with visual arts interviewees. They kind of speak in a register I don't really understand. So I'm always nervous with artists. I feel like we're going to struggle to speak to each other in a way that we both recognise and understand. And I've read plenty of interviews with Tracy where, which haven't gone particularly well. And I thought, oh God, I don't ever want to be the, the next one that does that badly. So when her name came up this time round, I kind of thought, oh God, oh God, this probably won't produce much. <laughs> As I said just now, you just never know before an interview, you know, and often your prediction is so far wider the mark from what happened. And in this, this was an absolute case of that. And for people who don't know her art very well, give us a few of the highlights. Well, the things, the two pieces that made her incredibly famous were this installation of her unmade bed, which was a kind of unmade, scruffy, squalid, kind of dirty mattress, um, sort of littered with used condoms, and it was sort of stained with menstrual stains. And by memory, I think there's kind of ashtrays with overflowing old ash next to them. That was the first thing that brought her to prominence. The other one was a tent she made and she applicated on it the names of everyone. I think it was called Everyone I've Ever Slept With. And partly this was sexual, meaning sexual, this was sexual partners, but it also meant her brother and her grandmother. And again, this caused a kind of big old sensation. And if I'm honest, at the time back then, I sort of thought both both of them felt very gimmicky. They were both promoted by Charles Saatchi during his championing of the YBA movement. And it all felt kind of chronically late 90s, London, swinging (laughs) London. You know, that whole period of time which felt a little bit self-congratulatory. It was at the same time as the, the, the shark in formaldehyde and all of those kinds of stunt art. And so on one level, I sort of thought, hats off, you know, you've really cut through and you have created a scene and a thing and a buzz and you have got all kinds of people like me who aren't artistically minded at all to pay attention. But then since then, she's um, she's done very... She's also become very famous for her neon lights. Yeah. Uh, And there's an iconic one... Uh, at St Pancras Station, which you see when you come in, particularly off the Eurostar. Yeah, I always stop and look at it. It's funny, isn't it? It does really draw your attention. It really, really does. And so over the years, having started off kind of assuming this is all probably a bit gimmicky, I revised my position over the years. And there is something, ostensibly, her neon stuff is very simple, simplistic even, and yet it's completely compelling and haunting. So over the years, I began to think, I definitely revised my sort of assumption that, well, I think this is quite interesting, but what do I know? And it's probably a gimmick to thinking, I don't really understand what it is she does. I do not have the credentials to understand it. All I know is that somehow her work touches me and I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, the the one at St Pancras, I always sort of, I always stop and look at it. And I think it says, I want my time with you. Yeah. it's so oddly affecting when you know you've been worrying about trains and times in a totally different way. It it's sort of it's quite arresting. There is something very very sort of subtle and elusive as I say it looks simplistic on the face of it. But there is something powerful. I mean talk us through a bit of the the wild image because you know you're right she does have a reputation for being quite difficult and difficult in interviews. What what had you heard before you went in? Every interview I've ever read she has a kind of a propensity to feel willfully misunderstood. And I think she had a very, very, very difficult 
childhood and upbringing um, and suffered all kinds of sort of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I think, you know, most of us, our compass is probably set by the time we're 14, isn't it? And, and in her case, she grew up in Margate, her and her twin brother, to a single mum who worked very long hours. Their father was a somewhat hit-and-miss character who was married to somebody else, and so he was partly in their lives and partly not. There wasn't any great stability. There was no financial stability. And I think she felt profoundly misunderstood in kind of raggedy old Margate back then in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And I think perhaps that assumption that people are hostile and misunderstand her was probably kind of encoded for all sorts of obvious reasons quite early on in her life. One of the ways in which you get a good interview from somebody is establishing a sense of sort of shared understanding. So you're looking for moments where you can both bond and understand each other and and that generates a sort of atmosphere of trust that then gets people to tell you. And that's a very difficult thing to do with somebody who's primed to feel misunderstood. So that's really why I dreaded it with dreaded interviewing Tracy because I thought that's bound to happen. And some interviewers are very good at getting good getting good material out of conflict and sort of jangly, prickly awkwardness. But that's not really my style or my 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 method. I don't I don't find that I get good interviews out of conversations which are fundamentally antagonistic. Antagonistic, exactly. Because it's sort of I suppose it does it does reveal one part of their personality, but you don't get much depth with No, that's just it. Once you've sort of described that and illustrated it, there's not really much else to go. As I say, other interviewers are very, very good. They're at their best when things are confrontational or antagonistic. But that's that's not really how I work. So what were you supposed to be talking to Tracy Emin about? She has a new exhibition at uh, the Royal Academy, and it's an exhibition of her work and Edvard Munch's work, uh, the Norwegian Impressionist, famous for The Scream. The exhibition is rather intriguingly titled The Loneliness of the Soul. Decker was supposed to meet Tracy Emin at her studio to discuss it. It's hard to drive through Shoreditch or Spitalfields without thinking of Tracy Emin. That, that neighbourhood, that East End, arty, hipster neighbourhood has become so defined by Emin and it feels, the two feel so in, in inextricably linked. Um, and she has a huge studio at the heart of Spitalfields. And I thought the interview was going to be taking place there, which would make sense in the normal, you know, that would be a conventional place for her to do the interview. But I got a call only, I don't know, an hour or so before the interview from the magazine at work saying that her people had been in touch with them to say she's not been well and she's having a difficult day and just to let you know that. But it, but there were no clear details about any of it. And then I think my editor texted me and said, actually, she's, she's recovering from surgery for cancer which point I thought, God, the last thing she's going to want to feel like doing is an interview. And I sort of felt even, to be honest, even greater sense of dread, thinking, oh, God, I don't, uh, I just don't know how this is going to go at all. And maybe, maybe we shouldn't even be doing the interview today. But I got to the studio and they said, no, no, she absolutely wants to do it. But we're going to do it at her house, which is a couple of streets away, 
where she doesn't normally, press don't normally visit her house. Her studio is her sort of public place. So that felt quite surprising. And then they said, in fact, she's been in bed all day, so you're going to do the interview in bed. And of course, you know, the journalistic, the journalistic bit of you goes, thinks, well, that's nice symmetry. You know, she first became famous because of her bed and now we're going to do the interview in bed. But I also at that point was thinking, is she really well enough to give an interview? I don't really know how this is going to work. So we walked to her house, which is this beautiful old Georgian classic, sort of Georgian property in the East End. And one of the most striking things is I sat downstairs while her assistant went upstairs to talk to her. And I think, you know, because Tracy Emin has an image as a kind of slightly chaotic party girl and and her work is very much about her intense personal emotions. And to some extent, the chaos of her life, you know, she's done work inspired by this rape she experienced as a teenager, the botched abortions. There's a kind of sense of slight kind of emotional chaos around her, her public image. What's so interesting is you step foot inside her house and honestly it felt more like a National Trust property than a, than a private home. It was... Every detail was so perfect. The floorboards, the log-burning stove. I sat next to a log-burning stove and on one side there's a perfectly symmetrical pile of logs and on the other side this perfectly kind of curated pile of of kindling and on the tables and on the sides are books about art and they're lined up. Every single detail in this house was just perfect in its arrangement. That's so surprising. When you're doing an interview, I suppose you're always sort of slightly trespassing into the private, but going into her bedroom, meeting her for the first time while she's in bed, what was that like? Everything you've just said is true. On the other hand, of course, I'm in irredeemably nosy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... At that point, you're thinking, well, this is a kind of, this has a kind of quality of intimacy about it that you can never replicate yeah. if you're sitting across each other in a table in a pub or in her studio or in an office. So part of me was intrigued. But I'm also, by that point, it's just become very clear that Tracy's really not well at all. And it also does feel very much like trespassing. Um, and what I just was completely unprepared for was the extent to which she had gone through this really awful, unspeakably awful, life-threatening medical treatment. And it wasn't like meeting somebody who'd been through treatment, and but you'd never guess unless you told them. You know, from the moment I walked into her bedroom and saw her, I was just... I, I did at that point think, God, I'm not even sure I should be here because she has clearly been through medical hell and is not out the other side and she just looked very wan very tired very drained and indeed she'd been in bed all day and at that moment I did kind of wobble and think god I this this doesn't even feel right to be here and yet the amazing thing was within five minutes I felt absolutely compelled by the sense of she has, even ill, even in bed, even as sort of diminished or reduced as she has been by recent events, she has this kind of magnetic, compelling sort of charisma, this sort of power that's very difficult to articulate uh, what exactly what's happening or why. She just has this quality about her that makes you feel utterly captivated 
and utterly close to her. You know, I've never met her before in my life, but you feel this mesmerising sense of closeness. And it's a difficult one to describe because often I'm interviewing people who are very, very skilled at being interviewed. They are, you know, particularly if you're talking about sort of A-list actors, they, they know how to give good interview and they know how to make you feel special. And by this point in my career, I can kind of spot the devices they, they deploy to do this. The really amazing thing about Tracy was I couldn't begin to tell you why or how, what she did or how she did generate this sense of absolutely compelling intimacy. It wasn't as if she was deploying palpable devices, recognisable devices. She just has a quality about her. In a way, sort of just hearing that, it's it's sort of such a reminder of her art, which really does just put everything out there immediately. So you sort of feel it's so raw and so personal um, and sort of disconcerting. <laughs> and it sounds like she's like that as a person too. That's exactly right. She's like a kind of human embodiment of her art. They both have this otherly quality that you can't identify or 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 name and yet when you're in its presence you're just completely compelled by it when you started the interview i mean it sounds like it was just such a, a big white elephant in the room did you did you broach the subject of her illness no she absolutely launched in so within the first 10 minutes she began talking about what had happened to her this summer and from that point on that's almost all we talked about. And every now and then she would suddenly remember and go and tell me off and say, we're going to be talking about my upcoming show. But then, of course, we wouldn't. We'd come back to talking about her health. We'll have more on that extraordinary conversation in just a moment. But you can access more of the brilliant interviews done by journalists like Decker every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. 
she was listening to the bird song, you know, that amazing bird song we had during lockdown and and those cloudless skies uninterrupted by pollution and by aeroplanes. She said she felt completely connected to life, but she also felt in terrible pain. And at that point then, she explained something that she hadn't told anybody for the last five years, which is that five years ago, she'd been in hospital with a ruptured appendix and she'd suffered something I'd never heard of called kidney reflux, which meant, I mean, she described it as she said, my my bladder blew out, which meant that urine was going backwards into her body and being reabsorbed into her body. And she said she was being treated for the appendicitis, but her friend came to see her in hospital and took one look at her and said, this doesn't look right at all. She said she kind of had these sort of lumps all over her where urine was being reabsorbed. And then she passed out. And then they diagnosed her as having had kidney reflux. And she said from that point on, her bladder has ceased to work. So she said for the last five years, she hasn't urinated. She's had to self-catheterize every time she needs to urinate. She said the thing is, it's uncomfortable and you get infections all of the time. And so because she has this reputation as a kind of party animal, of course, she's had to cancel things over the years because sometimes she's been hospitalised with, with urinary tract infections and bladder infections. And, and people always just assumed that she'd been on a bender and was stuck in bed with a hangover. So that had been going on for five years. She said, you know, she said, I'm very used to feeling unwell and I'm used to feeling in discomfort. And she said, I've hated it, but you just get on with it. And I didn't tell anybody. But she said on this day in June, she was experiencing pain that was quite unlike anything that she was familiar with. And, you know, the used catheters were blood-stained and she said, I just thought this isn't right, there's definitely something not right. And so she phoned her private urologist on Harley Street who said, come in and see me, who examined her and she said the urologist looked worried and said we need to do an immediate MRI scan. And she had the MRI scan done And she was at home in the East End when she received a phone call saying, we're very sorry, but you have a tumour in your bladder and you need to come in and have a consultation straight away. And she said at that point she was sort of amazingly philosophical. She went down to Margate and she spent the day with her twin brother and she didn't tell him until the end of the day. And this is very sort of Tracy Emin logic. She said to him, thing is, we've spent all day together and it's been fine, hasn't it? So nothing's changed. And if I'd told you at the beginning of the day, we'd have had a terrible day. But the point is, it was true at the beginning of the day and you didn't know. And now you know it's still true and it's just the same. It's very sort of... <laughs> I sort of had to laugh as she was telling me this. She said Because she said to him, you know, so that's how I'm looking at it. Nothing's different for now and I don't want you to cry and I'm not going to cry and everything's going to be the same. But then at each consultation with her doctors, things got worse and worse because initially they said, we think we can just remove your bladder and, you know, your bladder, she said, my bladder's crap anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And the cancer will be gone and that will be fine. But the thing is, it's funny, we use the word cancer all the time as if it was just this one generic universal condition. Yes. And I certainly used to do that until I myself got cancer five years ago and discovered that cancer is such a catch-all term for a million different things. And in Tracy Emin's case, they said, I'm afraid you've got... She was so taken aback that they used this word. They said, you, you've got bad cancer. And she said, well, 
isn't all cancer bad? And they said, no. Cancer alone would be... Quite, exactly. They said, no, I'm afraid this is bad cancer. And it's called what they call squamous cell cancer. And they showed it to her. They showed her her own cancer on the screen. And she said it looked like coral and she kind of wiggled her fingers in the air. She said, you can, you can watch it growing before your own eyes on the screen. That's oh, how aggressive it is. And that's how fast moving it was. By the end of this sort of hideous process of working out what they needed to do, the surgeon told her, I'm afraid we're going to remove your bladder, your urethra, part of your colon, your uterus, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes. At which point she's going, my God, anything else? Yeah. And they say, yeah, we're very sorry, but we're going to have to remove part of your vagina. Wow. Which is just as, as a sort of set of information to try and get your head around. It yeah. is unthinkable. And, of course, you know, she's sitting there in her bed telling me this. Of course, you. what I'm thinking is, but your vagina's famous. You know, this is so... This is there is a level of kind of cruelty about this, you know. Tracy's Emmons' body of work has been so much about her body, and about what happened to her vagina. You know, the rapes that she suffered, the sort of sexual trauma, the fact that she hasn't had children, the abortions. These have all played such a role in her work, and I thought. God, this is extraordinary. You know, she'd been do she did these amazing drawings during lockdown, which were shown in an online exhibition. And there are lots of them of her naked and sort of splay legged. And that had been the last piece of art I'd seen before she, before we met. And of course, the first piece of her art that I'd ever seen had been the bed, you know, covered in menstrual stains. It felt like if this was a novel about an artist called Tracy Emin. And she'd then been diagnosed and told that they were going to, to save her life, they were going to have to remove her vagina. You would think, oh, come on. That's just too, that's too much. That's too heavy-handed a plot line. That's ridiculous. It just seemed quite literally incredible. But she explained it all in very graphic detail. She was just utterly unsentimental, unembarrassed, just very, very direct and candid and real about it all. And she described how they were concerned that were, were the cancer to return, the kind of vaginal wall would be the likeliest place that it would come back to. So they had to remove internally her vaginal wall. And then she just, I mean, I could, I could have wept. She said, the thing is, so they've just sewn me completely shut. I don't have a hole between my legs anymore. And she said oh. it with such... She never broke eye contact and she never became emotional or wavering. That's not... When I say she didn't become emotional, I don't want to suggest that she was speaking in a kind of dissociative way or that she had detached or it felt really real and from the heart, but she was absolutely in control of herself. Generally speaking, when somebody's telling you this kind of thing, either they're a kind of an emotional mess or in order to prevent themselves from falling apart, they 
deploy that device all of us can do where we sort of detach and we speak slightly mechanically so almost as if we're talking about somebody else but she wasn't she was absolutely real and in the moment and yet it wasn't undoing her so it generated a kind of I mean I wanted to cry at that point I was closer to tears than she was it just seemed unimaginable that after everything she's gone through in her life this is what's happened. And she was in surgery for six and a half hours and the, the, the biggest question was when they removed her lymph nodes, would they find cancer in her lymph nodes? Because she thinks they were expecting to and they had said, if we do find cancer in your lymph nodes, you will be lucky to live beyond Christmas. And, of course, post-surgery, you have that waiting period when when the tissue is taken to the labs and they test it. And so then, you know, it's several days post-operatively before she got the results of that. And the amazing news is that it wasn't in her lymph nodes and that changes everything in terms of prognosis and survival, survival chances. You know, but nonetheless, she has lost, you know, most of her internal organs and... She doesn't have an orifice between her legs anymore and she has an opening in her side from which a tube runs to a urostomy bag, a stoma bag for urine. And that, of course, will be, will be there for the rest of her life. There's also, you know, and I know a bit about this myself, there's a kind of loneliness that comes with having cancer. You know, you do just feel desperately alone because you're in this strange suspended place between life and death you don't feel really truly connected to the world and in the world and of the world I'm speaking for myself now obviously and yet every fiber of your being is focused upon trying not to be dead it's a very strange kind of halfway house that you occupy and also it's very difficult to think about anything else other than what's going on inside your body. How did she seem to be coping with it? I mean, you know, you're, you're right, her body is so famous. You know, she's painted it quite often. How was she coping with the changes? The sort of worrying thing was she kept saying, I, I'm just not feeling very well. And she kept saying, I don't know why I'm feeling so unwell. And she hadn't been able to get out of bed that day. I think, you know, she's a very, very strong person. That's clearly the case, you know, physically, emotionally, she's got immense strength. And she definitely didn't feel like she had any physical strength when we were together at all. There wasn't an ounce of self-pity, not one trace. And... That is remarkable in the circumstances. It is remarkable, isn't it? And she didn't express any vanity about her appearance whatsoever. At the end of the interview, you know, we were together for two hours and then we went downstairs for the photo shoot. She didn't get dressed. She just came downstairs in her tartan pyjamas. She didn't do anything with her hair. She didn't do anything with her makeup. She seems... So in that sense, I think the answer to your question might be that she's... And perhaps this comes back... Perhaps she has a kind of deeper relationship with her body than many of us have, and that that's both yeah. informed and been informed by her art 
over the years and the connection between the two. And uh, I think she probably has a kind of more searing relationship with truth than most of us do. And if that's the truth of what her body is now, then I think she can connect with that in a way that is perhaps less disrupted than for others it might be by anxieties about vanity, I think. But I don't know, I'm only speculating about that. I mean, she did make a, a sort of gallows humour joke at one point. She said to the, she said that she'd said to her surgeon, so let me get this right, I'm going to lose loads of weight and have a really tight vagina, and this is bad? And so I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, That's somehow, I mean, I, I've never met her, but it, that's somehow very Tracy Emin. Exactly, exactly. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, sometimes people deploy that slightly black gallows humour as a way of distancing themselves from horror and keeping people away, keeping people out. But with her, it didn't feel like that. I think she does... I think she thought it was a funny thing to say. I don't think she was trying to maintain a facade or anything. The thing that I found really striking was she said, you know, had this happened last year, I think I might have topped myself because I was so miserable. But she said, but this year I was feeling so good and so happy. And I was rather taken aback by that. I... I thought maybe it feels more cruel for this to happen during a period yeah. in her life when she feels positive and hopeful. I think for me that would have been the case. You know, I think to be struck by this at a point when she felt like she'd been through a difficult time and was now very much focused on the future and feeling good, that felt cruel to me, but she found it fortifying that this had come at a point in her life when she was feeling stronger. And she explained that last year she'd felt very, very, very low... It was interesting, she had a big exhibition at the White Cube Gallery and she said what had really undone her was the sense of public adulation but no private personal love. And she said that had made her feel really, really hollow. And of course, you know, she doesn't have children, she doesn't have a partner and both of her parents are dead. And she is very alone in the world in that respect in a way that feels difficult to picture because she feels so much at the heart of East London and at the heart of the art scene and she was such a public face for so many years and, as I say, you know, sort of partying. But actually, she had felt very, very, very alone last year, she said. And then she made... She said she had an epiphany, (laughs) which is that she'd walked into Fitzroy Square in central London and thought, I want to live here. And she said, actually, I think what I was really saying was that I want to live full stop. And so she decided to sell her studio in short in Spitalfields and sell her home of 20 years in Spitalfields and she bought a house in Fitzroy Square. And there's something slightly difficult to understand, slightly opaque. She just had this sort of sense that moving house to this new house, leaving Spitalfields, moving to this new house, was just going to change everything. She had this huge sort of sense of investment in the new possibilities presented by a new postcode, a new home, a new... And she's completely invested in all of that. And all of that will still go ahead. She has indeed sold her gallery, in that, uh, her studio rather. And really? that will be packed up and gone by January. And she sold her house. She feels that somehow her sort of faith in the future has given her the strength to fight it. Yeah, I suppose this just sort of provides a bit of hope, something to look forward to, something new. Yes, I th- she definitely has a sense... And we talked about this, it's interesting, she feels that she wasted time. And she said with me, she just 
bitterly, bitterly regrets having all the partying, the drinking, the smoking, the partying. She wishes she'd gotten on with her art. She wishes she'd done more painting. And I asked her, if somebody had told you that 25 years ago, somebody whispered in your ear and said, you know what, you're going to regret all this partying. I said, would you have thought, well, that's crazy. I'm having the time of my life. And she cut me off. She said, but I wasn't having the time of my life. She said, I really, really wasn't. I was just trying to fit in. And I was so taken aback by that because we think of Tracy Emin as so absolutely ballsy and fearless and clear and uncompromising in her own mind. Yeah. But actually she said, no, you know, it was just... That whole world was all about partying and so I went along with it because I wanted to fit in, which I found really touching. There's something sort of so tragic about, you know, for, for a lot of people looking back, they'd sort of say the partying, you know, that that was the, a sign of a, a life well lived, I guess. And it's desperately sad that that's what she regrets. To be completely honest, you know, it's I found myself really sort of disproportionately upset by her regret for all of that partying. And I'm not really quite sure why, except I, I've, I came home from that interview and, you know, the honest truth is normally you leave an interview, you rush home, you upload the file, you're frantic to get it onto into a cloud or something before you go and sit on your dictaphone and break it. You know, all these kind of boring technical things are normally at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. And you're thinking about how you're going to write the piece and you check in with your editor and you tell them how it went and... You know, your mind is very much on the job. It's a job. And I just, I got in an Uber in Spitalfields to go home and just found myself just staring out of the window in an absolute kind of glazed daze. And I got home and I uploaded it and and I just wept and wept and wept. And the nature of my job is, you, you know, you move on from one interview to the next to the next. It's It's fairly relentless. And... It's unusual for my mind to linger on an interview, particularly once it's been written. You know, but I finished writing this, God, I don't know, nearly a month ago. And every day she's just in my mind. I can't stop thinking about her uh, and what she's gone through and, and worrying about her, which is absurd. I mean, I've only met her once. But it was interesting. She said that before, before she had the surgery... She wrote to her friends, she wrote an email to kind of lots and lots and lots of friends, you know, not close, close friends, sort of 70 friends, explaining this is what's happening, this is what's going to happen, saying, do not contact me, do not get in touch, I do not want to hear from you. If you want to know what's going on, contact the studio, they will tell you how I'm doing, but don't contact me. And I said, why did you do that? She said, I just, it was the burden of other people fussing and worrying about her. And I think, God, I've met her precisely once. And I can't get her out of my head and I can't stop thinking about her and worrying for her. So I imagine, you know, if you're somebody, if you're in her life, if you're a close friend, if she could have that effect on me in one meeting, then I think, God, that you know, the people in her life must be consumed by concern for her. And maybe that would be literally overwhelming for her. I can sort of see why, if my response to it is anything to go by. And yeah, so I have been really upset as well just by thinking of her regretting her partying years. I just think that it doesn't feel fair. The sort of strength that she took to get herself out of Margate and become the person she was. And I thought, God, she, she deserved to be partying. She deserved to have a good time. And the idea that it wasn't really a good time for her and that she now regrets it, 
I find really unbearable, really unbearable. And as I say, normally my mind is on to the next interviewee. But in her case, and I think this just tells, this again comes back to the power of her art. There is something about her as a person and her as an artist and her work that just has this quality of impact that I've very seldom come across. Sticks with you. Yeah, really, really sticks with you. I mean, Decky, you, you mentioned that you've had cancer in the past. Was that something you talked about with her? Bits and bobs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing is, wh- when you do, I think, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but this is certainly true for me and I think I've found it true of lots of people. You know, when you do have cancer or you've had cancer, the world slightly divides between people who've had cancer and people who haven't. Partly because until you have it yourself, you are broadly ignorant about all kinds of things. But once you've had cancer, you're... I mean, it's a shitty old club, but you are kind of in that club. And I think it was probably easier for Tracy to talk about this stuff to somebody who had had cancer and could relate to some of what she was talking about. I think that creates a kind of a bond that's difficult with anybody who hasn't had it, I think. Yeah. Have you kept in touch? We haven't, no. I just sent her... What I did is I sent her a book by Eve Ensler, who is the playwright who wrote The Vagina Monologues, who similarly went through the most appallingly invasive cancer of her uterus, and she had similarly all of these kinds of surgeries. It did seem kind of incredible. The only two people I've ever met who've had this level of sort of surgery, of course, in Eve Ensler was similarly famous for her vagina <laughs> she wrote the vagina monologues and yeah. famous for having written about sexual abuse and rape and it does seem sort of beyond my ken that both of them now should have to suffer this so i sent her the book and it's very it's very unusual to keep in touch with interviewees after the event very unusual but as i say it's also very unusual for them to live in my head in the way that they're doing so I hope that she likes the interview when it comes out. I really, really care about that. But I also recognise that none of this is any of my business and she's got quite enough on her plate without my concern. And yet I can't help just feeling absolutely laden with concern for her. Is that quite unusual, the sense of wanting them to like the interview you've you've written up? Yeah, generally speaking... What matters is that readers like the interview. That's who I write for. And in this case, of course, you know, I want everyone to enjoy it, but really in this case, and this is, I think, the only time in my life when I've done an interview where I've thought, if the only person who was happy with this interview is Tracy Emin, then I'm good with that. I'm not surprised. As, As you sort of left her in Spitalfields, did you get a sense of you know, how she views life and the future now. I asked her what her ambition was. Hmm. And she said, um, <laughs> she said, well, it's a lot different to what it used to be. <laughs> and then she said, to get past Christmas, that would be good. And then she talked about wanting to put right things she'd got wrong or do better. She said she'd love to do, she represented Britain in the um, Venice Biennale. And she said, I'd like to do another Venice show. Um, she taught, She was very focused on her work, wanting to kind of it just to be better, to do more painting, to paint more. And she said that 
she would like, she would desperately like to feel loved by a partner, properly loved. And then she said, but he'd have to really love my art as well. That would be the absolutely non-negotiable. And then she said, and then she sort of thought for a moment, she said, and I'd like to have a vagina back, which kind of was, it's a very Tracy Emin line, isn't it? And it just broke my heart. Yeah. Are you going to go and see the show? Oh, God, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Despite not caring about art. Yeah. Yeah, no, this has definitely changed my feelings 100%. <laughs> but I will definitely go and see this, for sure. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the chief interviewer for the Sunday Times, Decca Aitkenhead. You can read more of Decca's remarkable interviews at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The interview with Tracy Emin is still available online. It's an incredibly powerful piece of writing, but be warned, it made me weep. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you can, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. We'll be back tomorrow with all the latest from the American election. Do listen in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.